Welcome to the Cheyenne Vineyard Podcast, bringing you a message of hope for your everyday world. Thank you and enjoy today's podcast. So we're sending around a sign-up sheet for 24 hours of prayer to pray in the new year. We're going to start at noon on Thursday, the 31st, and go till noon on the 1st. And in the middle of that, from 8 p.m. till midnight, New Year's Eve, we'll be worshiping here also. Well, good morning to you all. Hope you all had a good Christmas. Am I adjusted well? Okay. All right. I tend to be so soft-spoken, it's hard for the sound people to, to deal with me sometimes. So bear with me. Pray for them and me. <laughs> um, before we start this morning, I'd like to just pray for a moment and ask the Lord to help us all. Father, we're here for your word. We're here to listen to what you have to say. So we want to hear what you're saying. We want to obey what you're saying. We ask for the revelation of your spirit. We ask that you would teach us. Holy Spirit, you are our teacher, and we ask you now to come and teach us what you want us to know. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, Pastor Jay has um, asked us to think about an apostolic way of thinking. Remember that from a message a few weeks ago and also an email, an update not too long ago? An apostolic way of thinking. Well, what is that? You know, apostles are people we hear all the time. Um, we don't think in those terms a lot in our culture today. It's just not something we're really all that familiar with. But this morning I'd like to talk to you about becoming an apostolic community. Let's begin by looking at Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. It says, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Now, that's the only verse in the Bible that refers to Jesus as an apostle. It only occurs one time. Now, we see the word apostle many times throughout Scripture. In every Well, I should say in the New Testament, it's not an Old Testament term. The word is translated from the Greek word apostolos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not. I'm not a Greek scholar. But it means one sent forth. Now, while Jesus is not called an apostle repeatedly, 47 times in the Gospels, Jesus said that the Father had sent him. Forty of those times were recorded in the Gospel of John. I was pondering that a little bit, and I, one thing that came to me is that the emphasis on being sent rather than on the title apostle makes me think that the Lord's more concerned about what we do than any title we may have. Jesus, we know, was a very humble, meek man. He was not in the business of promoting himself and trying to draw attention to himself. He wanted the glory to go to the Father. Now, when the Father sent his Son into the world, he sent him with a mission to be accomplished. In John chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him 
who sent me. So we're not seeing Jesus just come down to do whatever he pleased. You know, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The heart of Jesus was one with the heart of the Father. Jesus submitted himself to the Father and chose to obey him even when he was facing death. If you remember the passage in Mark, or Matthew, 23, again, Matthew 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus knew what he was about to deal with, what he was about to face. He knew it was one of the most brutal, shall I say, murders or executions that ever took place. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus submitted to the Father's will, even in the face of torture, humiliation, and death. Earlier, we know that he had taught his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. Again, it's your kingdom come, your will be done. One of the major problems I think we have in the American church today is there's far too much of our will, what we want. I think I'll just stop right there. I don't know that I need to say any more about that. It's, it's a very grievous thing, but I don't know that I need to explain it further. You know, in Romans chapter 14, verse 9, the Apostle Paul said something that has impacted me. <clears throat> he wrote, For this very... For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why did Jesus submit himself to the Father and go through all of that torture and that pain and that agony, that cruel death, so that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living? Now, what does the lordship of Jesus really mean? In very simple terms, it means we obey him. In fact, Jesus once asked in Luke 6, 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? See, it's one thing to say Jesus is Lord, and live it out in obedience. That's what the term really refers to. But if we can't obey him, in essence, we are denying his lordship over our lives. We're saying you don't have the right to dictate to me how I live. Digressing for a moment to our culture. We have a secular humanist worldview that is rampant in our culture. And that culture says, there is nothing in this world more important than me. It's all about me. It's about what I want. There is no authority higher than me. I determine what's right and what's wrong. There is no such thing as an absolute standard of truth, an absolute standard of right and wrong, because I determine what's right based on my best interests. And look where that's gotten us.
So I believe it's very, very, very important for us to remember the lordship of Jesus. Jesus himself was our example. He submitted to the Father. He obeyed the Father. We should also. Apostolic people submit to the lordship of King Jesus and obey him. That's the first of a few definitions of apostolic people I want to share with you this morning. Apostolic people submit to the lordship of King Jesus and obey him. Now moving on, the father had another purpose for sending his son. And that was that he would preach the kingdom of God. Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 4 verse 33, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. See, the word, the word apostle not only means one sent, but also sent with orders, sent with a mission. As Jay taught us a few weeks ago, when Rome sent out a group of soldiers or fleet of ships, they were going to take possession of other lands and convert that area into Roman culture and submit it to Roman government and Roman authority. That is the same thing that's to happen in the kingdom of God. We are not to be assimilated by our culture, to become like our culture. We can't afford that. Jesus didn't die so we could be like everybody else. When we preach the kingdom of God, it includes changing the way we think. It includes being born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. But it also requires that we learn the principles of the kingdom of God and that we live according to those principles. I thought about using the word law, and I think I will. It means learning the laws of God and submitting ourselves to the authority of the lawgiver and being obedient to those laws. Now, the reason I was reluctant to use the word law is I hate legalism. I don't want to bring us under a legalistic subjection to the law. But if you think about the Ten Commandments, you shall not have any other gods before me. Think about the ones that apply to civil, civil life, civil government. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. When America was founded with those principles in mind, we experience great liberty, great freedom, great blessing, and great prosperity. As we have turned away from those laws of God, life has become miserable. Life has become something other than what God wanted and something different than our founders wanted as well. So we need to submit to the law of God, the, the principles of the kingdom of God, and live by them. When we understand that the scriptures apply to every area of life, and that our king expects us to bring his kingdom into every area of our life, then we can apply those principles to our businesses, our schools, our governments, and every other institution under the authority of our king. King Jesus.
I believe that's a small... I mean, talking about preaching the kingdom of God is a huge subject. I can't really do it justice in just a few minutes. But that's just an overview. Another passage that I thought was interesting in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. When Jesus began his ministry in the city of Nazareth, he told the people there what the Father had called and anointed him to do. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel, or the good news, to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. I really don't have time this morning to unpack that passage and go into detail about what all that means. But one thing that struck me as I read it is the word oppressed. To set at liberty or to set free those who are oppressed. That reminded me of the passage in Acts 10.38 where it says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So who was doing the oppressing? The devil. Now what does that mean as far as, well, let me just put it this way. <clears throat> Jesus' commission to set the captives free and to bring liberty or freedom to the oppressed brought him into direct conflict with the devil's kingdom. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 even goes to far, so far as to say the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. When we look around us and we see so much of the devil's work, how tolerant of that should we be? Now, that doesn't mean we hate people. That doesn't mean we despise them. We all have our own issues to deal with, and we certainly don't need to be condemning or judging anybody. That's not what this is about. But it's helping, to see, help, helping each other to see the work of the enemy in our lives so that we can set each other free. That's why Jesus came, was to set the oppressed free. He doesn't want us to remain in bondage to all the stuff that the enemy wants to put on us. That's not living in the kingdom. We've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we ought to live like that. We ought to live in the kingdom of light and see the power of God flowing through us rather than being crippled by the kingdom of darkness. So a third point about apostolic people. Apostolic people are committed to fulfill the mission given to our Lord. I want to take you to Mark chapter 3 and point out a few things here. Early in his three and a half year ministry, Jesus chose 12 men who would carry on his mission. It says in Mark three fourteen and 15, Then he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have authority to heal sicknesses and to cast out demons. Now this passage I do want to look at a little bit more. There are three things that Jesus did here. His first priority was that these 12 might be with him. He wanted to have close relationships with these men. 
In fact, in verse 13, right before the last two we read, it says that he called to him those he himself wanted. As he looked through his world and saw people, he saw people that he wanted relationship with. I believe part of that's because he could see the potential in them. Not what they were, but what they could become. Now, one of the reasons that Jesus wanted them to spend time with him, that they might be with him, was that spending time with Jesus changes us from the inside out. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. As we behold him, we are changed into his image. We become like him as we see who he is. We see the result of that in the early part of the book of Acts. Some of these same men, Peter and John, it says about them in Acts 4.13, when other people, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Being with Jesus had transformed them from simple fishermen. Think about this. I almost wanted to use an example, but I, I'll not go there. Um, but you think of just an, a common laborer. You know, being a fisherman, yes, it required knowledge of the sea and knowledge of fish and knowledge of boats and all those kinds of things, very practical things. But they were not scholars. They were not speakers. They were not learned men. And what did Peter do in Acts chapter 2? He stood up in front of a crowd of thousands and preached a message under the anointing of the Spirit of God that brought 3,000 people into the kingdom. You see, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Becoming qualified is a process that occurs largely in the context of spending time with the Lord and allowing him to change us. So that is something that we must remember, is that we need to spend time with the Lord so that he can change us and make us into the people he wants us to be. Now the second priority in Mark chapter 3 was that they were to preach. The second priority was that he might send them out to preach. And what message were they to preach? Well, the same one he had been preaching. In Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we see Luke's re, uh, are sending out the 12. It says, He called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So they were to preach the same message that they had learned from their Lord. The third priority mentioned here in Mark chapter 3 is that they would demonstrate the kingdom of God by healing sicknesses and casting out demons. He had given them power and authority over all sicknesses and all diseases. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 28, Jesus says something about the, the relationship between the kingdom of God and the ministries of healing and casting out demons. He said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
When a demon is cast out, the power of God is manifested. The authority of God is manifested. King Jesus is declaring his rulership. Okay? So during his three and a half years with the apostles, he trained, Jesus trained them by both teaching and by example. He showed them how they were to live and continue to fulfill the mission that the Father had sent him to accomplish. And then late in his ministry, after he was crucified and resurrected, he told them, the disciples, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. What does that mean? Same authority. Same power. Same commission. He was sending them to do what he had done. I was talking yesterday with my one of my sons-in-law who uh, might still be at the Sterling Prison ministering there this morning. But I was asking him, you know, it says in Scripture that Jesus gave his disciples power and authority to heal every sickness and cast out every demon. That's pretty clear. The question in my mind was, do we have the same authority? His response was this. And it's something I've actually taught before. But in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, commanding them to teach their disciples to obey everything I commanded you. So what did Jesus tell us? That encompasses all of Scripture. Encompasses the Sermon on the Mount and that lifestyle. But it also includes healing the sick, casting out demons, cleansing lepers, raising the dead. I haven't gone there yet. But do you remember Robbie Dawkins? He's seen it happen in his ministry. There are places in the world where people aren't raised from the dead. The saints gather to pray because something has gone wrong spiritually. Think about that for a bit. I want to, I want to have you think with me about what happened when Jesus chose these 12. Because I believe when Jesus appointed his 12 apostles, he established an apostolic community. He was not just creating apostles and sending them out, but he was creating a community. When they came into close relationship with Jesus, they had to have interaction with each other. And they, of necessity, developed relationships with each other. They became a community of men who were committed to being a part of what the Father had called Jesus to do. They shared life together. These 12 actually lived much of the time together. If you remember John 2, they went to a wedding together. They fed the 5,000, the 3,000. They watched Jesus heal the sick. He sent them out to do the same. They come back and report to him. All these things that they're doing together. 
And there's something about doing things together that creates a bond between the people who are doing those things. So the 12 became a community, but then that community grew when Jesus sent out the 70. It says in Luke chapter 10, verse 1, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Now when he did that, just a few verses later, we're going to skip a lot of what he told them to do. But it says, he told them to heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke chapter 10, verse 9. Heal the sick there and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So the 70 were carrying out the orders of the apostle of our faith. These 70 were not called and gifted as apostles. But they did apostolic works as apostolic people. In the book of Acts, just a couple of other examples quickly, both of the, of the deacons, Stephen and Philip, these guys were anointed. Stephen preached a message that was so powerful that it got him killed <laughs> because the religious people hated him for exposing them. And they couldn't deal with the truth. Both of them saw miracles through their hands. They were not called and gifted as apostles, but they did apostolic works as apostolic people. That gives me hope. See, I'm not sure I'm an apostle. I have no indication thus far that I am. Okay, but it doesn't matter. I can still link with the apostolic mission of our chief apostle. We can all operate under the same apostolic mandate that Jesus gave. Now, some further growth occurs in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. We see that uh, the number of disciples who had gathered to pray in the upper room was about 120. After Christ rose from the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 6 tells us that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So Jesus' ministry in the three and a half years he was on the earth was pretty powerful. 500 people. That doesn't mean that they were all... Let me digress. I think we do ourselves a great disservice and the Lord a great disservice when we evaluate this, the success of our church by how many people are here on a given weekend. How big is our offering? You know, how many people do we baptize this year? How many, how many dollars have we given to missions this year? Are those God's measurements of stand, standards of uh, success? I don't think so. Because, you see, the commission of the apostolic people is to go. We are sent. We are to go into our world and bring people into the kingdom we're to bring the kingdom to them. And if we're doing that, we are successful. Now in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 to 43, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear, or awe, perhaps a better word, came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So we continue to see that the mission that Jesus was given is being fulfilled, it's being carried out. 
Now, one of the problems we have is that we so often think only of the 12 apostles that we don't realize that there were other apostles mentioned even in the New Testament. I have a list of the names of 16 people who were known as apostles in the, in the New Testament. Matthias, of course, was chosen to replace Judas Iscariot. James, the brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Of course, Paul. We can't forget Paul. How many epistles did he write? Barnabas, who was used of God to disciple Paul and bring him to the point of being an apostle. Apollos, Timothy, Titus, and Silas are also known as Silvanus. Those three guys worked under Paul. Tychicus, Judas, Andronicus, Junia, who, by the way, was a lady. Um, I can't remember which of the founding fathers. Oh, I can tell you right now. Give me just a moment. This is from a book by David Kenestrocki, I guess is the way he pronounces his name, called Apostles in the Emerging Apostolic Movement. But he quotes John Chrysostom, who was the Bishop of Constantinople. He wasn't partial to women, this John Chrysostom. He said some negative things about women, but spoke positively about Junia. And he's quoting her, him now and says, Oh, how great is the devotion of this woman that she, she, that she should be counted worthy of the appellation or title of an apostle. So a, an early church father recognized this woman as an apostle. So Junia, then Epaphroditus, Erastus, and then two other unnamed apostles that are mentioned in a verse but not given, and their names were not given. So why is that important? See, okay, we're not doing too badly. I won't keep you here too late. So let me digress again for just a moment. There are brothers and sisters in the body of Christ who believe that all of the spiritual gifts have died out. It's called cessationist theology. You know, tongues, interpretation of tongues, prophecy. Well, they wouldn't reinterpret prophecy. They would call it the preaching of God's word. But prophecy in the sense of hearing the Lord speak and speaking what God is saying, they don't believe that happens anymore. Healing doesn't happen anymore. Accept an answer to prayer. Some, you know, I was talking to a brother who attends another church. And he's got a real problem with some of the gifts, but he still believes that God heals in answer to prayer. But a gift of healing, where you lay hands on the sick and they recover, many of our brethren would say that doesn't happen anymore. If we don't remember that there are 16 other apostles in Scripture, We are not very open to the idea that God could call other people into that ministry as well. Now, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 4, and this will be the last passage we look at today. In verse 8 of Ephesians 4, Paul referred to the Lord Jesus when he wrote, When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Then three verses later, in verse 11, he lists those gifts. And he says, It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers. Those are at least some of the gifts that the Lord gave to serve and lead his church. I believe they're the primary ones. The other gifts, some gifts may not even be listed in Scripture. Because sometimes I believe Scripture is descriptive rather than 
Definitive is the word, yeah. Okay, so in other words, some people have an anointing. Some would call it a gifting to lead worship. Some would call that a psalmist. It's not listed in the New Testament. But I certainly appreciate those who have that gift. Okay? Now, verses 12 to 16 tell us what the purpose of the gifts are. I guess is that'd be better grammar, wouldn't it? So let's look at verses 12 to 16, and then we'll come back, and I'll make just a few comments quickly about those. They're in Ephesians chapter 4, <coughs> excuse me, verse 12, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now going back to verse 12. <coughs> the New International Version, by the way, I'll tell you about a personal bias I have. I don't like the 2011 edition of the New NIV. If you ever compare it to the 1984 edition, you'll probably see why. But the 1984 edition is the one I use. <coughs> and it's, it says, <coughs> rather than the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, it says to prepare God's people for works of service. So when you're equipped, you're prepared. You have the equipment, if you will, to do what you're supposed to be doing to serve the body of Christ and the world, which is the work of ministry. <coughs> verse 13, this is a critical verse. It says... Until or until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect or mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, when you think about that, is the body of Christ united in their faith? Or are we all over the map? I just talked about our cessationist brothers and sisters, okay? That's just one very small example. So we're not united in faith. Until we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, do we all know Jesus to be the same person? Do we believe that he is not only the risen Lord, the creator, the healer, the deliverer? Does the entire body of Christ believe that? No. To a perfect or mature man. Is that where we all are? I'm not there yet. I'm not a mature man in the sense of what I see in Scripture. When I compare myself to the, the looking glass, if you will, of Scripture, I've got a ways to go. to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Am I so full of Jesus that you can't see anything but him when you look at me? I wish. We haven't seen that happen yet. 
And what this verse is telling us is that until that happens, those gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher are necessary to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. We cannot allow ourselves to lose sight of the fact that all of the gifts are in operation today and are needed today to fulfill the mission that God gave the church. I want to um, talk with you about verse 16. From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, let me ask, are we joined and knit together? Do you have a picture of what that means? Think about this. When you knit something, don't those pieces of yarn get intertwined so much in each other? You can't take them apart anymore. If you try to take one out, it ruins the whole knitted garment. So are we joined and knit together in that way? If not, why not? Paul told us that we are joined and knit together by what every joint supplies. What are the joints? The joints are the relationships between the members of the body. I remember teaching on this some time ago when I Showed you this, but I'll show it to you again. This wrist joint, if it doesn't work, my hand stays wherever it is, whether it's here or here or there, it doesn't move. And therefore, it's not very useful. My hand is not very useful. If my elbow doesn't work, my whole forearm, in some ways, you might as well just cut it off. Okay, so the joints have to function for the members of the body to function. And if we don't have relationship with each other, we can't be joined and knit together. It's just as plain and simple as that. However, if we are in proper relationship with the other members of the body, Every part will be able to work effectively or properly. We will also know what our function in the body is and be able to do our share of the work that we are called to do. When that happens, it causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Now, we've been talking about the vital necessity for each of us to be in relationship with other people in the body. At this point, <clears throat> I'd like to pass out um, just a real brief summary. Plus, would you help me? I've got plenty for everyone to have a copy, so go ahead and take one. What I'm asking Phyllis and Kim to pass out is just a very brief summary of scriptures which show us how to relate to one another. Now, these are based on the New King, New King James Version, which is normally what I read and teach from. Um, there's one, for example, I believe it's Romans 12.10. If you read the New American Standard Version, it talks about honoring one another. So, when I saw that, my thought was that I need to take these verses, look them all up in multiple translations, study them, meditate on them. <coughs> now, just a few quick comments on this. 
There are 15 verses that are listed right at, almost at the top there that tell us that we're to love one another. Most of the rest of those verses show us how to love one another by ministering to each other's needs. When you really look at these verses and what they say, you see that you have to have knowledge of other people. You have to know them in order to be able to do what Scripture is telling us we should do. I'd also like to point out that in, in most of these cases, these are not just suggestions. They are very clear directions. Do this. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> Let's just take a couple moments. I'm just going to read the wording on the left side, starting with have compassion for one another. I just want you to think through these. My question to myself and the question I would hope every one of us would ask is, am I doing this? Have compassion for one another. Be kindly affectionate to one another. Have the same care for one another. Bear with one another in love. Bear one another's burdens. Give preference to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Be like-minded toward one another. Receive one another. Greet one another. Serve one another. Submit to one another. I'll digress to just say, I had to ask myself recently, do I even know what that means? <laughs> what does it really mean to submit to one another? So I started doing a study on it. I'm not prepared to teach on it yet. But think about, I mean, so many times we hear these words and they just kind of go right over the top of our head and we just say, oh yeah, I've heard that before. Going on, be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Teach one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Admonish one another. Comfort one another. Edify one another. Exhort one another. Consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. Confess your trespasses to one another. Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. Minister your gift to one another and have fellowship with one another. So when we think about this, who are you doing these things with? Who are you serving and submitting to? Who do you admonish, exhort, edify, and comfort? Who do you invite into your home to be hospitable to? Who do you pray for and with? Now, I understand we're all busy, life is busy, and we don't have the emotional and physical energy or time to have that kind of relationship, even with the relatively low number of people who are here today, let alone our entire body, you can't do it. That's why Jesus chose 12. He didn't choose 120. He chose 12. Because he could do these things with them. So, that's one reason we encourage you to be part of a life group. To have a group of people you can practice these verses with. I don't insist that somebody be in a life group. There may be churches somewhere where you're either in a life group or you're not part of the church. 
but we don't have that attitude here. We want you to be, or at least to be in relationship with others. So John and Melanie lead a group. Jay and Joy lead a group. Bev and I will be. And we have prayer here Wednesday night at 6.30. If you don't have somebody that you can do these things with, we encourage you to be part of one of those groups or start your own. Come talk to Jay or someone, and we'd be happy to see more groups start. Now, I want to close by this. If we are going to become an apostolic community, we must be both apostolic people and people who live in community. Apostolic people, to review, submit to the lordship of King Jesus and obey him. Preach the kingdom of God. Are committed to fulfill the mission given to our Lord. And apostolic people choose to live in community. So the closing question that I just want you to ponder, are you committed to becoming an apostolic community? I believe we can be. ask you to show us more. What I've shared is just scratching the surface. God, we ask you to open. Open our eyes. Help us to see the hope of our calling. Help us to believe the great things that you want to do in us and through us. Help us to receive the love of our brothers and sisters and give it away. Help us to become an apostolic community, an apostolic church that invades our community here, the city of Cheyenne, the surrounding region, and brings the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to where we live and work and play and go to school. God, help us to see that we are carriers of your presence, carriers of your kingdom, and we're here to serve you God, we ask that you would use us this next year make this a reality, Father. Only you can do it by the power of your Spirit. It's not us, it's you. It's not in our natural abilities. It's by your Spirit by the power of the Lord. So we ask for greater faith to receive, to believe, to walk in the power and the authority that you have given your disciples. We are all part of that apostolic company who are committed to the great commission of reaching our world and changing it bringing people out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God, we thank you. God, we believe for great things next year. We believe that you're going to use us for your glory, not for us. We don't want the glory. We certainly don't deserve it. You deserve the glory. You are king. You are the king of glory.
have your way, God. In Jesus' name, amen.